we are going to continue uh, our trip through the lectionary. And, and I want to start, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you wondered if there was a place for you. Like, have you ever felt that way? Like, I feel a little bit like an outsider. I feel like, I don't know if there's a place for me. I, uh, some of you know this story, but a couple of years ago, I go to Atlanta for, for pilot training every year. And so a couple of years ago, I, uh, I usually take my family with me. And, and so we went to, to go eat dinner. And one of my favorite places to eat is Chili's. I don't know why. There's nothing amazing about it. I just, I like it. So we looked for a Chili's. We found a Chili's not far from the airport. And uh, we walked in to the Chili's. I mean, you know Chili's, right? You guys love Chili's. I walked in the Chili's, and I was like, I don't see any other white people here. I don't see any white people here. And I did this sort of subconscious panic, like internal, like I was just sort of maybe a little bit aware of like, the fact that I felt completely uneasy because I didn't see anybody who looked like me. So we walked up and they gave us the, uh, they gave us the, you know, the table. They walked us to the table and the whole time I'm walking to the table, I'm looking, looking around at all the people sitting in the restaurant and I don't see any other white people in the restaurant. We walk back, you know, you know how Chili, Chili's is set up the same way everywhere. If you didn't know that, now you know that. We walk back, you know, the bathrooms are in the back and the right, you know, and so we're walking back and they're taking us to, to, to our table and like, I'm looking into the kitchen, like, where do they keep the white people in this place? And I became hyper aware of how, how much of a handhold it is to see people who look like me. And I began to have this thought as we got back to our table and we started to sit down, I had this thought, I wonder if they want me here. Have you ever thought that way? I wonder if they want me here. I wonder if, like, I wonder if they wish I just kind of wasn't here. You know, because I don't know if there's a place here for me, although at home, I love chilies. I'm uncomfortable. I wonder if there's a place for me here. Have you ever had that thought? Is there a place for me, or am I just an intrusion? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe not that extreme. Maybe it's, you know, it's your first day at a new job. And you walk in, and you're introduced to your coworkers, and you get in, and you start wondering, is there a place for me? I mean, I'm good at my job, and I know what I'm doing, but is there a place for me here? These people have history. Will there be a place for me? Or maybe it's your first day on campus in college and, and you show up and you don't really know where to go. You kind of know where to go, but you walk in and you just sort of wonder, is there a place on this campus for me? Is there a place for me here? Can you recognize this anxiety? And Have you had this experience? Or maybe it's your first, some of you who play sports, your first day on the team and the team has history, right? And you walk onto the team, high school, college, any team, you know, rec team even. And you go, is there a place for me? Are my gifts and my experiences valuable here? Have you had that experience? 
You know, this is the experience for so many people who encounter the church. This is the experience for so many people who come into an encounter with Jesus. This is so many people who experience the kingdom. The question is, is there a place for me here? You know, maybe this is your story. Some who are outside of the church wonder, if I go there and I engage with these people, will I be welcomed or am I going to be judged? Am I going to be treated poorly? Is there a place for me in the church? Some of, some of you, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a really long time, and yet you still wonder, is there a place for me to use my gifts? Is there a place for my experiences here? Can you get in touch with that fear? Is there a place for me? I know there's a, a, a diverse age group that's part of this. Some of you are here and go, is there a place for my age group here? I'm in college. I'm retired. Is there a place for me? Do you feel that? Friends, here's the message that I want you to hear today. In the kingdom, there's a place for you. This is the point I want you to hear today, and I want you to get to it. In the kingdom, there's a place for you. So we're going to look at Matthew 14, but before we do that, can we pray? Let's just pray and, and just invite God to, to speak to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you as we open your word, Father. God, would you bring it alive to us? Lord, that the preaching of your word would reach its desired end, God. Lord, would your words come out of my mouth? None of me and all of you, Lord. And God, I do pray that you would, would have impact in people's lives today. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So we're going to be Matthew 14. If you've got a Bible, you can uh, open it. Most of you just, you know, pull out your phone, switch from Facebook to the Bible app. Feel free to do that. And we're going to look at Matthew 14, and it's a story that for many of you might be fairly familiar. Matthew 14, and we're going to begin in verse 13, and here's what we read. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have here five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, 
besides women and children. Now, this account of Jesus feeding 5,000 people is one of the first places that appears in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us this same story from four different perspectives. The beauty of a passage like that is that we can reference the other ones to see what maybe, the, maybe Matthew's not focused on. And each of the gospel writers tells it kind of from their own perspective. And at the outset of this story, Jesus is withdrawing from the crowds. Jesus is a guy who likes rest. Anybody else like rest? Anybody? Jesus is a guy who likes rest, and this is sort of a kingdom thing. And so he, he withdraws from the crowds, and he gets into a boat. And if you, if you reference the other gospel writers, what we see is that it's not just Jesus in the boat. Jesus takes his disciples with him in the boat. And you're kind of like, okay, so, we're, you know, Jesus knows how to get away, right? Anybody else think that, like, resting on a boat is kind of the way to do it? I mean, that's, like, that's my idea. Let's go get on a boat and just go hang out on the water. But this is sort of like a, it, it's sort of like a, if there's no private place to get away, Let's get in a boat. At least there's a limit to the number of people that can be around us. So Jesus and his disciples get into the boat. But one of the things that Matthew points out right before our passage is that Jesus has just heard the news that his cousin John had been beheaded. And so there's this sadness, certainly. But if you reference Mark, he's also just heard these elaborate stories about how the disciples went and did ministry with great effect. And so there's this mixture of emotions that Jesus is on one hand really, really sad and on the other hand super excited. And so he gets on this boat and takes the disciples with him. And while they're on this boat, they, they're kind of riding along. And if you, if you, you should read the Bible with maps. If you don't read the Bible with maps, you should read the Bible with maps. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, what you'll notice is at its widest point, it's eight miles wide. But where Jesus and his disciples get in and where they land, they're never more than a mile offshore. And so while they're riding along offshore, these people on the, are on the, on the shore watching and following and tracking. And they're, they're walking through towns. And as they go through these towns, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. These are the same towns that Jesus has already performed miracles in. It's the same towns that likely the disciples just came from doing healing and de deliverance. And so all these people are like, you can imagine, right? Like, they see him get in the boat, and they're like, let's follow. Let's see where they go. And as they go through a town, they're like, that's Jesus out there. That's Jesus out there. Come with us. You'll see some amazing things. And they're, I'm certain they're like, who knows what Jesus is going to do next, right? So this crowd meets them on the other side. And in our story, we see that it's 5,000 just men, not counting women and children. Some scholars say it's upwards of 20 to 30. 25,000 people are waiting on Jesus when he lands. And so Jesus, this walking encounter with the kingdom of God, everywhere he goes, the miraculous happens. Everywhere he goes, 
God's rule is demonstrated, healing happens. And we have this great crowd to see what's going to happen next. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, I think there's things that we can grab from this encounter for our lives. The first thing I want to, to point out to you, I want you to see that there is a, a place in the kingdom for you. The first thing is Jesus demonstrates that compassion is the atmosphere of the kingdom. Compassion is the atmosphere of the kingdom. Look at verse 14. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The Greek word here is one of my favorite Greek words because it just sounds like you're it's splagnizomai. See how fun that word is? Try it. Splagnizomai. It's a fun word. And what it means is to be moved in your guts. You know that guttural reaction you have when you see something that's not right? To be moved in your guts. It's closely, biblically, it's closely related to the word pity, which we don't think of pity as a good thing, right? Like pity tends to be fairly condescending and Oh, pity them, and, you know, it's very... But biblically speaking, the biblical connotation of pity is uneasiness at the unhappiness of someone else with the desire for their relief, that we're moved internally. Jesus is moved internally with response to the, the unhappiness, the, the misshapenness, the brokenness of the people that He encounters with a desire to relieve what's bothering them. In the Bible, compassion and pity are resolved by mercy. Mercy. And so where we encounter people in brokenness, bondage, and injustice, God's people are to be stirred by pity and compassion to move into acts of justice and acts of mercy, and acts of wholeness, and freedom, that this is the biblical response when we see people in pain, when we see people in bondage and brokenness. And so what this passage is saying is that Jesus was moved to action because of the deep desire, the deep desire to right the wrongs that He saw. And from this came the healing of the sick. And from this came the feeding of the multitudes. Here's the point. Compassion is at the heart of kingdom breakthrough. You, you, you know, there's a lot to be said about what it looks like for the kingdom to break in, for God's rule and God's reign to happen. You know, people talk about, well, it's got to be in worship and praise, and we've got to do all these things, and we've got to get really excited. False. Everywhere the kingdom breaks in, in Scripture, Jesus is not moved by hype. Jesus is not moved by magnificent praise. He's moved by compassion. There's something about the kingdom that it really doesn't need to be hyped up. It requires you to be moved in your guts for the sake of someone else's wholeness. Compassion is the seedbed of kingdom breakthrough. It was, com it was compassion that led God to become Jesus. He saw creation broken. It was compassion 
that led Jesus to heal the sick, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom to raise the dead. And it was compassion that led Jesus to die in our place. It's compassion. This sort of gets looked over, doesn't it? The value of compassion in the kingdom. We talk about powerful preaching. We talk about, you know, people full of charismatic ability, and and they're just super likable people, but compassion in the Bible is what moves. Some of you are in this place where maybe you feel like you're a million miles from Jesus. You know, maybe you feel like, "I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I'm damaged goods. I'm broken, and there's no place for me. And friend, what I want you to understand is that Jesus is moved to compassion toward you. And his invitation is that you come and receive the love of God. Some might say, well, hold on. What about wrath and, and justice? And, we, you know, God's you know, got to get his peace The Bible says that Jesus is the perfect representation of the invisible God. When Jesus was on earth, he always met people's need with compassion and mercy. This is what God looks like. The only people he routinely meets with warning of God's wrath and God's justice are religious people who think they don't need mercy, who think they can earn it. It's the only time Jesus confronts people with danger of wrath and and God's justice is going to be served. I mean, words like brood of vipers. I mean, if you call somebody a brood of vipers, I guess that's a fairly wrathful phrase. And then Jesus went with all the sinfulness and all the brokenness of the world to the cross and died. An act of compassion. The wrath and the justice of God was dealt with at the cross. That's finished. It's done. If you're someone that's always worried about people getting what they deserve and getting the wrath and the justice of God, I want to suggest that you probably have never experienced the compassion and the mercy of God. Because once you experience the compassion and the mercy of God, you have it freely to give away. I would challenge you if that's your perspective is that people need to understand that they're that they're going to they're going to experience the wrath of God. I want to suggest that maybe you should come and experience the mercy of God. The good the good news is that God's grace is available to all who open themselves to it. So the first thing we learn compassion is at the heart of kingdom breakthrough. The second thing that we see is compassion creates the atmosphere for Jesus to demonstrate the reality of God's rule and God's reign, what we would call the kingdom of God. At the end of verse 14, look at this statement. Uh, that It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So compassion moved him to do something very kingdom and heal their sick. And it feels a little bit like Almost like a throwaway line, right? Like Jesus gets off the boat and kind of moved with compassion. He just kind of heals their sick. And the way it's written, you get this sense that Jesus heals all of the sick among them. That it wasn't like, well, this one and not that one and this one and not that one. 
When the kingdom comes, healing happens. It's part of the nature of God's rule and reign. But there's something else. The kingdom demonstration doesn't just stop there. Jesus takes what seems to be someone's little snack, you know, five loaves, two fish. That's a pretty big snack, I guess. But Jesus takes this little, little bit of food, and he feeds tens of thousands of people. And I think we would go, oh, that's cool. Jesus does miraculous things. But here's the deal. This is Jesus demonstrating the kingdom of God. And some of you go, what does multiplying food have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, let me tell you. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, speaks of what it will be like when the kingdom comes. Isaiah 55, here's what it says, verse 1, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. When the kingdom comes, there will be food for all regardless of ability to buy it. Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation says this, and I don't think I put this one. Maybe I did put it in for the the folks at home, but verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The kingdom is portrayed as a wedding feast. That there's something about the the bounty of eating in the kingdom. That the fulfillment of the kingdom is a feast. And before he's arrested and crucified, Jesus constantly refers to the kingdom as the feast. Catch what's happening here. Jesus shares this Passover meal right before he's crucified. And he tells them to repeat this and remember this feast. When Jesus wants us to remember the kingdom, he gives us a meal. That there's something about the kingdom that is demonstrated in the meal. So why am I telling you all of this? I mean, you all know I like to eat. It's clear. For those at home, it, the, it really does put on 20 Five pounds. It really does. The camera is just, it's brutal. Why am I talking about food? When Jesus multiplies the bread and fish to feed tens of thousands with 12 baskets of leftovers, what he's demonstrating is the reality of the kingdom of God has come in this place. That the feast that we're looking forward to has broken into now. That's the demonstration that's happening. There's something about sharing food with others that has the ability to point to the kingdom of God. If you've been around the vineyard for any amount of time, you know we eat at basically everything we do, right? Basically, if it weren't for COVID, we'd be eating now, right? The people at home are probably eating now because they just miss us. But every time we have a class, we eat, right? When, we, when COVID's not happening, we have the family meal where we all bring something and we eat together. Why do we do that? Because it's a picture of what happens in the kingdom is that we eat together. But there's something else that happens. It points to the reality of the kingdom of God. Eating has this ability to point to the, the kingdom of God but in a lot of ways. But let me share with you one way. 
Eating together points to the kingdom because when we eat with people we would not normally choose to, we make them our equals. There's something in the kingdom that says there's not any hierarchy except Jesus is at the head and the rest of us are equals. And so when we eat together, in in the Bible, if you eat together, what you're saying is you and I are equals. You don't eat with people who aren't your equals. And so when we eat together, what we're saying is we're equals. And when we choose to eat with people we would not otherwise choose, when you choose to share a meal with someone who's homeless that you would not normally invite into your house, when you choose to share a meal with somebody of some race and some ethnicity that you would never choose who's different than you, what you're saying is the kingdom is a reality. That's what we do when we eat here. This is a room full, an outdoor room full of people who would not necessarily choose one another. That's what church is. It's higher education and loving people we don't choose. And when we choose to eat together with people that we would not otherwise choose, we demonstrate, we point to the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom, where all people are equal under the lordship of Jesus. That's what we do whenever we take communion together. As we all share this meal, recognizing that Jesus is king, and the only reason a gathering like this, of people as widely diverse as this group, would be together is because of the lordship of Jesus. That's the deal with eating together. We who follow Jesus get to recreate this. You have the ability to recreate this There's a great book I'm in the process of reading. It's called Faithful Presence. Any of you know I like to read. Um, Faithful Presence by a guy named David Fitch, and he talks about the spheres and one of of society. So there's the in the church, there's the church people gathered outside the church, and then there's church people gathered with non-church people. And when he talks about the communion table, what he says is we all have the opportunity to do this in our lives. We practice this reality with one another every time we take communion together, but you have the opportunity in your real life to sit down to table fellowship with people you would not normally choose and invite Jesus to be the king of the meal. And in doing so, you point to the reality of the kingdom of God. We have a unique opportunity. Do we take it? The last thing I want to point out, Jesus' expectation is that the kingdom comes through the hands of the disciples. The kingdom comes through the hands of the disciples. Read, look at verse 18 with me. It says, bring them here to me. He's talking about the food. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Did you catch who does this miracle? It's not Jesus. Do you see whose hands this comes through? The disciples have these these five loaves and these two fish, and they could try to hand them out to tens of thousands of people. That's a pretty scary thought because about two people are going to get to eat, and everybody else is going to be very upset. Jesus says, bring this stuff to me. 
The disciples bring what they have. They hand it to Jesus. Jesus gives thanks and breaks it, and he hands it back to the disciples to go do the miracle. Did you catch that? The expectation of of Jesus is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are his follower, you will respond and the miraculous comes through your hands. Do you get that? Do you see that? Is that your life? I mean, right before this passage, the disciples had just been out healing and casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom, but now Jesus uses the disciples to multiply food. Some scholars say that as, as, they, as the disciples, that likely what happened was that they were handed the bread, and as they tore it off to hand it to others, that they saw it multiply in their hands, and they're looking at each other like, do you believe this? Look at this. There's more. There's more. I just keep tearing it off and I never run out. There's more. This is sort of what it's like to do ministry in the kingdom. It's not a, think about that for a minute. A scary place to be. You have five loaves. You're walking around with your little half loaf, tearing it off for these groups of 50s and 100s. And if you run out, what happens for everybody else? And yet, in the moment, in your hand, Jesus multiplies the bread. That's, that's doing kingdom ministry, right? Any of you have ever tried to pray for somebody, when you walk up to pray for healing, what's your thought? This is never going to work, right? Anyone else? All of you got it figured out. This is never going, this is insane, right? Isn't that the thought? It's, it, it, you, you're praying a silent prayer as you go to do these things, right? It goes like this. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Right? That's the prayer that you pray when you're getting ready to do the ministry of Jesus. <laughs> because you're like, there's, nev- there's no way. This is just never going to work. And you lay hands on somebody and you pray for them. And in your hand, the miracle happens. Have you had that experience? Have you ever had the experience of, of God speaking something to your, to your mind about someone else, for someone else? There's no way you can know. Biblically, we would call this a word of knowledge or prophecy, right? Speaks a word to you for somebody and says, now go tell them that I said that. Any of you ever have that happen? What happens when you go to go tell them? Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I mean, you know, this doesn't make sense. We're not in a good spot. I'm not going to say, you know, they, they probably don't even think, they think I'm crazy. I'm not going to, I, I can't say it. But, I, you know, God just keeps going, tell them, tell them, you got to say it. Have you been in that space? And as you open your mouth, Jesus fills it, right? Those of you who have had that experience, as you open your mouth, the words that you share become the words of Jesus. It's in that moment that the kingdom stuff happens. And yet, Jesus doesn't walk around necessarily and tell these people these things. I'll tell you something I've had a hard time trying to understand is, if God gives me a word for somebody and I don't share it, do they never get it? I don't know. Is it okay for me to say I don't know here? Is that, is that okay? Anybody else? Okay, cool. If, some, if, God, if I see somebody, God highlights somebody who's got 
an injury or an illness and says, go pray for that person and I don't do it, does that mean they don't get well? How much power does God give us? And yet there's something about God seems to not do it apart from your hand. In this miracle, do you think Jesus was just going to... Got wonder bread happening. Just thousands of loaves. There's something about the disciples of Jesus being willing to submit in obedience to what God has given them and it's in the hands of disciples that the miraculous happens. So for those of us here who would say we're followers of Jesus, when was the last time we were part of the ministry of Jesus? When was the last time you laid hands on someone who was sick or injured and prayed for healing? When was the last time you walked into a place and you said, God, if there's somebody here you want to talk to, would you show them to me? And then when he gives you a word for those people, you share it. When was the last time you prayed for deliverance for someone who was in bondage? You see, I think we like to believe that something about being a disciple of Jesus is just being a really good student that we all sit around and study the Bible together. And, and there's nothing wrong with studying the Bible. Don't hear me wrong. People don't, don't write me emails. Nothing wrong with studying the Bible, but I think sometimes we like to think or we trick ourselves into thinking that what it is to follow Jesus is to just sit and study Scripture with each other all day long and throw worship music on in the background and recreate this environment, you know, and just... It's great, and we just, you know, I got worship music playing in my car, and I got, you know, my Bible study that I'm going to go to on Monday, and my Bible study on Tuesday. I'm going to go to a Bible study on Wednesday. I lead a Bible study on Thursday, and we think that something about following Jesus is just sitting around with worship music and studying the Bible all the time. That's not the picture that Scripture paints to be a student of Jesus in the Bible is more like an apprentice, which means that you're going to put your hands where the, the, the master puts his hands, and you're going to say the things that the master says, and you're going to learn because the expectation is one day you take over the family business, that one day when Jesus says, all right, now you go, you're prepared to do kingdom things. It's the reason we study Scripture is to help us as we do kingdom things. It helps us understand the character of God as we speak prophetic words and we discern whether or not the word that we have is actually God's voice. It's really helpful to have Scripture at that point. But studying Scripture as an end to itself is not the goal of the Bible. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, would say that, that this is, the Bible is the menu. You don't go into a restaurant and eat the menu. You go into the restaurant and you order from the menu so you can have the meal. And the meal is, what do you do once you've read this book? That's the point. To be a disciple means you do the master's business. Do we do that? Or do we just like to read about it? I'll tell you one thing. I'm not interested in any faith that just has me read about it. I want to do the stuff. I feel like a Wimber thing here. 
I signed up to do the stuff. Some of you know that video. The other ones are like, what is he doing? If we claim to be followers of Jesus, do we actually do the ministry of Jesus? That's the question I'm asking you. Because here's the deal. There's a place in the kingdom for you as a disciple to do the ministry of Jesus. It's not just to be in the book. Some of us may be afraid to put ourselves out there. You know, what happens if I pray for someone and it doesn't happen? What happens if I lay hands on them and I say, you know, Jesus heals and pray for them and they get worse? What am I going to do? How do I defend Jesus in that moment? What am I, I going to do? That's a scary thing, right? It can be a scary thing to do the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the reality is to do the ministry of Jesus, you have to be willing to lay down your pride. Because there's a really good chance you're going to look stupid at some point. Anybody who engages in this ministry at some point misses it and they look silly. It's risky. But John Wimber spelled faith R-I-S-K. That if you have faith, you take a risk. But I mean, honestly, what else is there? Really? Really? What else is there? We can either be ineffective and disengaged from being actual disciples or else we can try to hand our five loaves and two fishes to, Jesus, or to, to the crowd without letting Jesus do something with it. I'll tell you what, there's only one that I want to be a part of. You know, there's many of places that you've probably experienced where you've not felt welcomed or you didn't feel like there was a place for you. Maybe for some of you, it's within the church. You don't feel like there's a place for you. And maybe some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time and you just wonder, is there a place for me? Friends, in the kingdom, Jesus has a place for you.